0: Welcome to Build. This is Maggie. Today, I have Derek Steer on the show. He's the co-founder and CEO of Mode, a collaborative data platform, one that, full disclosure, I have used for years. In this episode, I get Derek's take on what it actually means to be data-driven, how that's different from being metrics-driven, and why data on its own is not the answer. I hope you enjoy it. Derek,
1: welcome to the show. Maggie, thanks for having me.
0: Yes, of course. I am really excited because today we're going to get into one of those hot topics that seems to get tossed around as a thing we should be doing, uh, but that I would bet that not everyone is really doing effectively all the time, especially if you're like me and you work in a B2B startup, and that's data-driven decision-making. So before we get into it, I just wanted to start by getting some definitions. So Derek, if you could share, what is your take on what data-driven decision-making actually is?
1: Okay, this maybe this is going to be my first bit of controversy right at the beginning. Yes. Which is to say, I think most people use the, the term data-driven in what I'll call, not the wrong way, but in a very different way than how I think about it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I want to separate data-driven from metrics-driven. There are a lot of folks, so let's take like a, a lot of go-to-market orgs have targets to which they're tied, right? If mm-hmm. you're a sales manager, you expect your team to make a certain amount of calls. And from those calls, you've got your conversion ratio. So you, you know you know generally like how the funnel will shake out and you manage your team to hit certain metrics through the funnel, knowing that at the end you'll have the right yield. That to me is metrics driven, but but a lot of sales leaders would tell you that they are data driven or marketing mm-hmm. leaders or, or whoever it may be, right? Go to market orgs who say they're data driven, but what that means is that they're looking at metrics, they have standards that they need to hit and they're doing their best to do it. That's very different from using data to solve problems and then taking the results of that and, and incorporating it into the way in which you work. So my favorite example problem is how to price and package a product. This is something that requires research, and a lot of that should be quantitative research. That's a data-driven way of doing it, to go and research how individual segments use your product how engaged people are with different pieces of the product and and start to form an opinion based on data of where you should draw the lines for, say, your entry-level tier, your mid-tier, your top tier. That's like data-driven decision-making or data-informed or whatever you want to call it. I don't really care about about names for it, but but I do want to draw this delineation between watching metrics all the time and making sure that you're hitting them and using them to drive an operational cadence versus doing analysis to help with decision making.
0: Right. That's good. I was going to ask you if there was a difference between data driven and being data informed because I definitely feel as someone in the product space, I definitely feel the idea that I could look at data all day but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm I'm doing this right. And the other question I had is how does qualitative data fit into this if at all? So,
1: well let's let's talk about the notion of doing this right first. Okay. For these two different types of things, doing it right means different things. So when we're talking about looking at metrics, doing it right just means having them visible and, and holding people accountable and, and making sure that you have a good cadence around that, right? So, mm-hmm. so for those go-to-market teams or across an entire company, right? Like the notion of tracking your OKRs and making sure that you're doing the things you think you need to do in order to hit the OKRs, that's, it's about visibility and and the kind of constant drumbeat. Right. For analysis, you're really only getting value if you use it to contradict your own opinions. That's not quite right. There are are plenty of things you can do to get value from from data exploration. But if you're using it, as many do, just to confirm the things that you already believe, Mm -hmm. then there's not much point in doing it in the first place. I think that's a common pitfall is, is that folks really try to bend their analysis in the direction that they want it to go. I found that the stuff that, that tends to be hard to argue with and, and pretty helpful is sometimes really broad sorts of things like opportunity sizing, right? So if you need to make a decision about what type of product you're going to introduce, understanding how people use your existing product today and saying, for example, search, okay, so, so search is a product that is tough to understand. If you want to look at search patterns within, within a web product, it's going to be a different answer as to what to do if no one ever searches
2: mm-hmm.
1: or if a lot of people search one time and then never again, or if you have a subset of people who search all the time, but most people try it once and never again, right? All of these point to different issues you might have with your search experience and then different mm-hmm. things that you would do to fix them. That's, I think, a really good kind of targeted way of using data to inform what you might do.
0: Right. And something that's interesting is that I love this distinction between metrics and analysis because I think it's sometimes a little bit intimidating to say, oh, I need to be data driven. What I'm interpreting what you're saying as is that I need to be good at asking questions and then I need to be good at understanding what to do with the, how to interpret the information that I'm getting. Because just looking at a metric doesn't really tell me anything. But if I have a set of questions and then I have data, then maybe I could reason something out.
1: Yeah. And to that end, you know, if you were a early stage company hiring your first head of analytics or data science the things i tell you to look for are their ability to ask the right questions and then their ability to interpret information right. which is of course a hard thing to interview for but you know if you go to talks by the sort of foremost people in this field they'll mostly tell you the same thing which is that a really great problem solver with simple tools is going to do a much better job than someone who's not quite so good at thinking through problems but can do all of the fanciest modeling in the world.
0: Right. So then how, again, I want to circle back because I think as a, as a PM, a lot of the common wisdom out there is like, you got to talk to customers, you got to talk to customers. So how does that fit into this world of being data-driven, if at all? Well, what I'll say
1: about the job of of an analyst is not just to like crunch numbers, the image of the like nerd in the corner who doesn't talk mm-hmm. to anyone is is really wrong, and the best people I know at this job are students of their businesses, and they go talk to other people across the floor. They don't necessarily have the time to go and talk to customers directly, but but like getting information from the customer is super important. I'll give you an example from my time at Yammer, which is where I worked you before starting mode at Yammer. One of the most impactful things that our product team ever came up with was really simple. So for anyone who doesn't remember or know, Yammer was a really early entrant into the social networking for enterprise space, the space that Slack and Microsoft teams now kind of dominate. But Yammer was more of a Facebook style threaded messaging product. And the way that it worked was anyone could just sign up with their company email address, invite other people from their company and start messaging about any kind of work stuff. That's really what it was for, as opposed to Facebook, which is your, your personal productivity. Well, not product, whatever. Facebook's for your <laughs> personal stuff, okay? yeah. like At least at that time, you know? So some PM, and I forget who it was, but, but someone had this novel idea that if we were to let folks know who's new in their organization, right? Someone new signs up. If we made it clear who's new, then other people are going to interact with them. They're going to have a good experience and they're going to stick around, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's going to improve retention. And sure enough, of everything that Yammer ever introduced from a like, clearly measurable metrics perspective, this is one of the best features that was ever introduced. And what it was in practice really was just like a little black bar across the mm-hmm. bottom of a new person's photo with white text that said new. That was it. it was just a clear label. That's amazing. <laughs> and it stuck around for like a week. It was so good that it kind of made everyone sit up and take notice. All the product managers said, oh, okay, well, now that we know that there's a really clear lever here, like getting interaction in your earliest experiences on the platform is going to make you more likely to retain, what are all the other ways we can think of to make that happen? And so you started to see product managers really gravitate toward toward anything that was going to facilitate conversation with new people. It's also relevant to customer success, who after we sign a deal with a new customer, they're going to go to their champion and say, hey, if you want this thing to be successful, and we know your reputation hinges on you making Yammer successful, if you want that to work, you should make sure to personally interact with new people as much as you possibly can. Because we know that that's going to help them to stick around and generate good conversation. Same story with our sales team and our marketing team, right? We build go-to-market stories around making this sort of thing happen. And it results in a much better outcome for the business with everyone understanding, okay, like we've we've taken this thing that we've measured Mm -hmm. and we've broadcasted that to everyone. Now, in terms of getting feedback from the customer, right? It's not just that like we did this analysis and realized this thing retained better and then broadcast to everyone. Our research team went and followed up to try and understand why and like what specifically it was. About these conversations that we're helping loop people in, and I think that's the role—that's the role that the customer needs to play—is their voice is important. It's not really practical to interview every customer about everything, so start with data, understand the broad trends, and then confirm your hypotheses or reject your hypotheses after talking with people individually.
0: Right. Yeah, I love that. Just using that as a as a check against the data that you do have, and making sure that you're interpreting the data correctly with anecdotes or at least customer conversations
1: what i'll say too is you know we use chorus and really love it mm-hmm. and we use it way outside of just our our go to market organization right so chorus is a little thing that sits on our zoom calls and records them and creates transcripts and our sales managers love it because they can work with account executives to help them ask better questions, refine their pitch, and and so on and so forth. But we've got groups in product and engineering who are listening to these calls too and hearing directly from the customer. And so through tools like that, we're able to... like It's not practical for our product team to sit in on every customer call. And they don't have to now. Now our accounting execs can say, Oh, something interesting came up in my call. I've got the transcript and the recording. I can ship this off to our product org. They can understand in the customer's words what the issues are. And then we can use that as a jumping off point for analysis. So I think with technology that exists today, we now can get the customer insight at the beginning and end of the process rather than just at the end.
0: Yeah, we do exactly the same thing. We use Gong, but similar workflow. And I think that's probably one of the tools that we least expected that the product team would be obsessed with. But we do tape reviews. And yeah, I love I love having that level of access.
1: Yeah. Anyone who's not doing like listening parties is missing out.
0: Yeah, 100%. Another thing that I'm curious about is how teams set themselves up to do this process better. One of the things that I learned early in my career was, and full disclosure, I've used mode many at many companies and currently use it today. But one of the things I found myself doing, especially when I was a product manager, was just doing a lot of exploratory looking around and like asking questions and getting answers and asking better questions and getting answers. But I'm curious how you see teams set themselves up to, to even like start accessing data effectively?
1: It's such a broad question and it it depends so much on the existing DNA. Mm -hmm. What I'll say is there's a thing that a lot of folks miss. And I mean, not just companies, but individuals. It's a trap that's very easy to fall into, which is you've got an analyst or someone who knows a little bit more about the data than you do at your company.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You go to them after having looked through some kind of elementary stuff, so in the product world, you probably use like a mixed panel or an amplitude or something. We we often see mode deployed alongside or as the successor to something like a mixed panel or amplitude.
0: Oh, I li- I like mode just straight up.
1: Straight I don't like up. the
0: abstraction of the other tools. I'm much much more of a fan of like I want to get in there and I want to play around on my own. But yeah, I, I see your point.
1: Yes, a PM after my own heart. <laughs> There are lots of ways to get started. Okay. So, so maybe you've got a dashboard set up in mode, for example, right? But there's mm-hmm. some, there's something that is set up to kind of give you a filtered view already, whether you set it up in mode or whether it's in ampli- amplitude or something else that is just going to say, like, okay, here's, here's the high level stuff you need to care about. And then you have a question and it's time to, to like kind of start doing the follow ups. The big trap I think people fall into is that they are prescriptive in their follow up questions. And, and this is like the, the number one kind of data team value killer is if you mm-hmm. have a culture where people just go and request specific, like, hey, data team, can you like, help me get this metric in this way? And the data team's just like, yeah, at your service, totally, sure. The value that they can provide and the, the missed opportunity, what you'll get from a good team there is, hey, I know you're asking for this thing, can you tell me more about what you're trying to solve? Like, are you trying to go in this direction? Because I happen to know that, you know, this data might be a little bit more, you know, closer to what you want. They can anticipate your follow-up questions. They can just do a better job of understanding the problem if you give them the proper problem as opposed to just like a request for a metric. And I, I just see this go wrong over and over and over, even internally within mode.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you. I mean, I have two things. One, it sounds like exactly the same thing that I would say to a product manager who's treating their engineering team as ticket takers when really what you want to do is engage them in the problem that they're solving because, of course, they know the domain and they know how to answer questions really well. Um, So I love that parallel. But then the other thing is you're running mode and hopefully your team is the best at making data-driven decisions. So how do you make sure that your team is following all these principles?
1: Well, I'm guilty of this myself. Even in this role and part of it is because, you know, I think I'm good at this. It's funny. So my wife is a is a design leader and you know, I've seen in places where she's worked where the the founder is a designer themselves. That's a it's a different flavor of challenge. Yep. And I'm sure that working in data and mode is the same flavor of challenge. Where <laughs> there are these founders who are like, have deeply experienced in this particular job and have an idea of what it should look like. So I'm, I'm probably more prescriptive than I should be. And I, and I pretty routinely, fortunately, our team is really, really, really good. And they'll mm-hmm. just tell me, like, no, Derek, that's not what you want. Like, <laughs> let me, just let me help you out here. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that happens pretty regularly. But the real answer to how we solve it is we've got a good idea of how to hire people who are capable of recognizing when to push back and then pushing back in the appropriate way and saying, hey, I know you asked me for something that's like real basic, but like, let's get to the bottom of it for real.
0: Mm -hmm. Kind of related to that. Another thing that I've seen, I know I'm definitely guilty of is, you know, going off and doing some exploration and trying to get a better sense of the data that I have. And then I find myself redoing the same Analyses over and over again. And every team is as the, our company is scaling, you know, everyone's doing their own thing. How do you think about how people can make can scale data-driven decision making without just everyone redoing each other's work?
1: So there are a few ways to do this. The biggest problem is is one that exists in any content management system, which is understanding what's cruft and what's valuable.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There are things we've done internally at mode to organize this. And I certainly hope that your customer success manager has has been working with you on, on helping to organize that stuff and outside of the context of a podcast. About that <laughs> I'll too. save
0: my feature requests for later.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> I'll create a podcast. You can come on that and tell, yeah.
0: me, tell me about it. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I'm just I'm just curious about like maybe not even within the context of mode, but like how you help people scale this asking these questions and doing data-driven decision-making, because it, it just feels like something that's really easy for, okay, everyone wants to use data. Everyone has to make data-driven decisions. Everyone goes off and uses all these new tools that have popped up. But then how do you, maybe it's more like a knowledge management question, like how do you help a team not repeat each other's work and actually like get it right?
1: Yes. So content organization is, is at the root of this problem in any system, because There are other products in our space that are kind of geared towards solving this problem specifically. And and what they say is like, okay, well, you're going to use our product to kind of define a menu of metrics. And those are going to be the metrics that you work with. And you face this challenge of like, well, sometimes that menu is not big enough, or you need to put something new on the menu and it takes too long. Like there are real trade-offs to that. And you get this value of like, okay, everyone measures stuff the same way every time. And that feels good but you also miss out on a ton by not going direct to the data, by having this kind of filtering mechanism. The way that we think about it in mode, internally, we have something that we call core concepts that we've been rolling out to our customers with pretty good success. Core concept to us, like we map them to things like revenue or customers or engagement, things that are the way that human would think about them. We've, We've organized them the way that if you are a thoughtful person who is employed by mode, you can go into our mode instance, go to this core concepts folder and see, here's all of the things that are blessed by the organization where I know that the data is going to be right, and I can use these as building blocks for my own analysis. Got it. That's how we've done that. We have this particular problem where, you know, part of our differentiation in the market is that you can do anything, right? It's totally flexible, write Python, write R, just do whatever you want. And so people do a lot of ad hoc analysis in the system. And so this is something that we're... Today, we try to guide people on how to organize content to do this. We have some kind of productized things, like you need to deliberately put your work into a public space for other people to be able to discover it actively, right? right. You can still share stuff in your private space, but like if you want something to be discoverable, you got to make it public, which we view as saying that something is production ready or relevant to other folks. Even just that productization, like when when we introduced that, it used to be in the original version of mode that like all of the content anyone ever created was just in one big old bucket and yeah. it, worked, it was totally unworkable, right? So so having those different kind of staged levels of production it really helps to, to guide people to the right stuff.
0: And do you have an opinion about who should be using mode or like doing this type of work? It seems to me like a natural fit in my life as a product manager, but I'm curious if you are you seeing more functions that surprise you who are getting in there and asking questions and using the tool than maybe you predicted when you started.
1: I'm not surprised that there's an appetite for data analysis across entire businesses and there really really is. Mm-hmm. The thing that surprises me is that finance are kind of the laggards generally. They're living in an Excel land still, mm-hmm. uh, but beyond that and that's a real sweeping generalization. There, there are exceptions. Um, and in fact, if you were to go to a company that does microtransactions, so if you think about like gaming companies where people are buying lots and lots of like $1 things, they are, they are super technical on their finance team. So certainly not a universal statement. But in terms of appetite for data, we see data teams organized under almost every part of an organization. And that's what to me makes me even more optimistic about the space than 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 I should be otherwise like everyone knows that data is hot what's exciting about it for me is it's hot everywhere and like everyone wants to own it and have it be part of their organization
0: oh yeah i was just going to say that i i think another sort of area of question i was going to ask you is if you're seeing that change the way that leaders are operating because i think I learned SQL in my first PM role, and now that I'm moving into product leadership, I find I'm do way. You know, I'm not really doing the analyses myself anymore, but I have to understand enough about how someone on my team might do them to see, you know, interrogate them, see if they're right, ask better questions. And so I think like data literacy, it feels like is sticking around with our roles and becoming just as important in leadership. And I was curious if if that. Is something that you're seeing across the different orgs that you work with.
1: If you want to read a more complete answer on this, I, I wrote something on Quora a while back. Um, mm-hmm. So you can go to my Quora profile and, and check that out on just the evolution of roles in the data world. Okay, I think that what's happening is, as you described, your average knowledge worker is becoming much more data literate and has mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. As, as the CEO of a business... I know that it's possible to get data on basically whatever we want. There's very little that we can't know if we decide we're going to measure it. And what that means is the people who report to me have to feel that way too. And the people who report to them, right? Like Because I know that it exists and it can be part of the conversation, there is an expectation that it will be. And that it works its way all the way through the organization. And that exists at, at every company now. At the highest levels, which means that everyone else has got to fill it in. And if you're not, you know, bringing data to the table when you're making some kind of decision, then your boss is going to be pissed. So you just—it ha- just has to be, and it will be the case. And what that means for roles is, I think that data professionals become increasingly specialized. It could be specific technical skills, so mm-hmm. you know, around skills like computer vision, for example, or things that are really advanced. Like they'll—they'll they'll become very deep in their sort of T-shaped kind of way, it won't be enough for them to just be very broad and shallow because leaders are already going to be that way. Mm -hmm. They're just already on the way there. Like you've done some hands-on data work in the past. As a leader now, you you have an expectation that folks will come with at least your level of skill, if not more. Right. In basically any role.
0: Yeah. How do you prevent a team from over relying on this type of work. I'm curious, have you seen either within your company or within, you know, other people in the industry, teams like over rely on data and like what happens to them and how to know if you're doing that?
1: There's certainly a concept of analysis paralysis. And that's the concern is how do you know? You know, when I said just a moment ago that we can track anything we want, it doesn't always mean that we should, right? At the end of the day, Having information that is actionable is, is ultimately what matters. The way that I always talk about it with people who are in this field is that the hardest thing, especially folks who are early on in their careers, right? Mm-hmm. If you're brand new to analytics or data science, the thing I'm going to tell you is, that is it is kind of an art, is knowing when to stop. Right? How deep do you go into a problem before you realize that either you're going to not find anything there? Because a lot of times, I mean, it might be 9 out of 10 analyses that's like, well, this didn't really yield anything of note. So how do you know when you're done with it, right? Do you just keep going until you find something interesting? Well, probably not. And I, I'm i sorry to say that it is more of an art than a science, right? There's a certain amount of hunch and it comes from, from business understanding. So my sort of second piece of advice to folks is when you feel like you're stuck and at the point of needing to, to make the call on like keep going or stop, the correct thing is usually to go talk to someone else who is a domain expert, right? Like if it's in the product world, go talk to the Product managers that you partner with understand if there's value in continuing to go deeper into understanding something. And if not, then just stop and go do something else.
0: Right. I want to come back to to advice. But before I come back to that, you just made me think of something. What's like the best example of data-driven decision that you've seen recently? Do you have one you can share that was surprising or interesting?
1: So. I've talked a bit about our own move to a freemium model. It's its own whole talk. I, you, you, if, you, if you look up my talk at Web Summit in 2019, that's kind mm-hmm. of where I, where I get into it in more depth. I'll give you the kind of quick one. And since I, I don't know if I can actually share publicly the customer's name, uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll keep it anonymous. But good, good. we had a customer who did some international expansion
2: mm-hmm.
1: and found that their product was less sticky with international audiences. Now, there's lots of reasons why that might be. And the way that they approached it is engage the data science team, develop a bunch of hypotheses, and then go and and analyze behavior internationally and, and see what the deal was. And they ended up having to look into some data that they hadn't previously aggregated in their data warehouse so they had to bring new data into the picture. But one of the theories was our servers are in the United States. People are having a really, really bad time uh, in terms of performance and that's what's going to that's what's going to impact their experience and sure enough they were able to tear out performance degradation into a few tiers and found that you know the the worse your performance degradation the less likely you were to come back so it really was tied to like just the speed of the product and then the clear decision was you know now that they had these metrics they were able to deploy servers internationally right i mean it's like all in aws so it's like okay we're going to spin up in a new a new region we're going to direct traffic locally, and then we're going to measure the exact same metrics and see what happens. And sure enough, huge improvements. Right, so I think kind of the classic investigative find a good answer. You know, it, it's a it's an example I like because there's a nice happy ending.
0: Yeah, yeah. I have I've talked about this in, on the podcast. In the past, maybe a year or so ago, but I had one in my first job as a PM where we did this whole analysis and we had this whole theory about the a new redesign of a page we were looking for, and you know we shipped this thing and it worked really well. And then I went and ended up talking to a customer just to try to make just to confirm the hypotheses that we had because it it worked, but I had some unresolved questions about it. And the, (laughs) the person I talked to was like, "Well, you made the button bigger and you made it orange." So I clicked on it and all of the data that I had looked at was just ma- meaningless. And really all I did was just made it easier for them to see the thing I was working on. And that was a really good lesson that I had early in my career that sort of a counter example to yours, that even if you do the, your, right, your analysis right, it might may not always be the case.
1: I cannot overemphasize that an understanding of the customer and the business is critically important to having a good result and that data on its own is not the answer. To this end, a lot of the companies in our space or companies that have tried to enter our space, particularly with value props like version your data or data sharing, I don't think data is that valuable on its own. Obviously, it's valuable in the hands of someone who knows how to ask the right questions. Mm -hmm. But like sharing data is not that helpful. You want to share analysis. At least that's my take. We very rarely talk... It's also like analysis, not really that good of a word, right? Like analysis-driven decision-making is not... Oh, right.
0: <laughs> right, but I get the point you're making that it's it's more than just that there are numbers. It's that there is a purpose and you are using data to inform decisions in a way that's like meaningful and structured.
1: Yeah, but I think even referring to it as data-driven decision-making, like the fact that we use the word data whenever we're talking about analysis, it's misleading for most right. folks. And And I think probably pulls people away or or it, it directs them farther away from the value that they could be getting.
0: Yeah, I was actually going to ask you if part of when you started Mode, if part of their plan was that you wanted to open up access and have all these different types of functions and people sort of getting getting their hands dirty in data or if that was something that sort of came as a surprise or organically with the product because it that's always as someone who maybe wasn't didn't think of myself as someone who might be using a tool like mode it certainly became really useful to me in my career and I don't I don't know if I would have known that when I started
1: the value in mode has always been about sharing and collaboration and we've known that from very early on we did some experiments around Kind of a public open source analysis marketplace, a la GitHub. You think back to 2013 when we started the company. That was it was, it was hot and and appealing and seemed like a, a good way to help bring the product to market. And it ultimately failed for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. But in terms of in terms of sharing with folks who are not dedicated analysts or data scientists, you know, before we even launched a product, I wrote this thing called SQL School, which still lives on Mode's website, like Mode.com/slash SQL dash tutorial. Mm -hmm. It's now one of the the most viewed SQL tutorials on the internet. It gets a few hundred thousand uniques every month. What's special about it is that it's made to level people up from where they are today. So at the time, if you were to go look at SQL resources, like you get, you know, SQL for dummies book or something like that, Mm -hmm. what you'd get is a bunch of lessons on how to set up a database, how to get data into it. And it was aimed at software developers. Like it right. really was, here's how you set up your SQL backend to your software application, which is not what analysts do, right? Like If you're taking a job in this space, you're going to show up to a company and that's already going to exist. So you just need to be great at writing a select statement. Like you need to be right. good at, at using SQL to do analysis and you can skip the database creation steps. Also, you probably don't have application programming experience already. So you're coming from the different angle of pro- probably Excel in most cases, right? Yeah. Or maybe Tableau or something like that, but something that is just a simpler version of SQL in the data analysis world. And so this tutorial that I wrote is really focused on taking folks with that Excel knowledge, teaching them the difference between Excel and a database, and then giving them skills to, to get value from data in a database. And you can see throughout our product that this notion of leveling people up exists from stage to stage. So I think we've done a really good job of when an analyst shares something with you, you're able to either kind of visually explore it, save that off as derivative work, and now you've you've done something that maybe you couldn't do before. You can, with one click, see the SQL that created it, and then clone and create your own kind of SQL statement and play with it from there. You can borrow work from experts and modify it, which is a great way for people to get started. Any software work I've ever done, I've just copied and pasted from Stack Overflow. So in some ways, mode is like your internal Stack Overflow for how to work with your database. And then even with Python and R, you know, One of the biggest gating factors to a SQL analyst learning Python or R is simply how annoying it is to set it up. Like, particularly Python is awful to get running on your machine unless you are sitting next to someone who has done it before who can hold your hand through the process. Mm -hmm. And with mode, it's it's totally different, right? Like, you don't have to worry about getting Python running on your machine. You just click notebook. Right. We dump the results of your SQL query into a notebook, and you can write one line of Python to create a plot or to, honestly, like for me, the, the most valuable thing there is summary statistics. So calculating a median in SQL is really awful.
0: Yes, can, oh, can, can you, confirm.
1: Yes, can confirm, right. It's like an interview. It's an interview question. It's like, hey, can you- yeah. like, figure out how to An count- interview
0: that I would 100% fail, so great. I'd
1: probably fail it now too.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: because what I would do instead is I'd go to Python or R where it's one line of code. Not only is it trivially easy to get a median, but when you do it, it gives you for free Every other descriptive, like summary statistic about about the data set, you know, you get mins and maxes, you get the 25th, 70th percentile, you get all of the stuff that you would want as just like one big dump of information.
0: Right. So this was all part of the plan was just like access and democratization of the data and just making it easy. I don't think I realized that. I mean, obviously that's what I was getting out of the product, but I was just curious if that was like part of the founding story given like how important that's become at least to the way product teams operate for sure
1: it was all intuitively baked in i don't know that we had verbalized it in exactly that way and and this is one of the things that we've learned because josh ben and i the founding trio of mode all come from this space right and it is it's a big advantage in our ability to serve our core audience that that we have lived their lives and and understand their jobs but what we didn't really know is how to break that down for other folks who are not analysts and data scientists. And that is something that we have learned ex-post. I think we knew intuitively that like making a SQL tutorial and doing it in this style was going to be valuable. And that the way in which we implemented Python and R in the product was the right way for our audience in leveling them up from SQL to Python and R. Like Those were conscious decisions. We just didn't articulate it to the market in exactly that way, but but have listen to our customers and the people who are, who are learning within our product. And and now are better at talking about it.
0: Right. So, I mean, I have so many questions, but I think it's been really interesting to hear sort of, it's interesting in talking about how to make data driven decisions. Is we sort of like are inherently talking about the your product and the, the journey of your company. It's just really interesting. But in the interest of time, I have a, my last question for you is like, what advice do you have for people who want to, to be better in this field, who want to be more data-driven, um, who, but maybe for whatever reason just are stuck or you know, intimidated? What would you tell them?
1: Start with mode SQL school. <laughs> I got to work in my shameless plug, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, if you work at a company with an analytics or data science team, that's the place to start. Go to those folks and ask them because what they'll be able to do is is direct you to things that are specific to the job that that you're working day to day. And I've generally found that people learn the best when they have something practical to, to which to apply their learnings. So, so like, uh, Patreon is uh, a customer of ours and they've just started, they actually took our SQL school online Mm -hmm. and adapted it using their own data and have been putting people internally through. And they did it first with people who raised their hands and wanted to do it, right? So there are people in their organization who said, I want to learn more about this. And then they said, okay, fine, we're going to put together something Mm
2: -hmm.
1: that's going to culminate in a project, right? Like we're going to give you some kind of analysis to do. And and sure enough, they were able to run these classes and use the materials. And by the way, if if there's anyone out there listening who wants to use SQL School, just hit me up on on Twitter or shoot me an email, Derek at modeanalytics.com. I'll be more than happy to just give you all of the SQL School lessons so that you can go do this yourself. I want nothing more than for more people to to learn data analysis skills. And I think that the organizations who are doing this really well are running programs like that internally.
0: Yeah, that's how I learned. We had... I don't remember what the tool was. I think this was pre-mode maybe even, but we had like 1PM who would put together a sheet and she had written out like, here's all the basics of all the different things. And then she had set up like a little project within our own data at the company. And we like went through little classes to learn how to, how to actually apply this stuff. And I think that has served me so well in my career. And so I'm super, I love that that's open and available because I think just that access is huge for people who wanna move up. Totally.
1: And look, not everyone's gonna have the bandwidth to like create a course and and teach within their company. Right. But you can get little tips and tricks one on one. Like like you can use Mode SQL tutorials to learn the basics. And then you gotta go to your, you know, the people at your company who know the data the best and and ask them for problems for you to go try, you know, ways to practically apply it.
0: I love it. Well, Derek, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate you taking some time to chat with me all about thing everything data driven.
1: Hey, it was my pleasure. This was really fun.